0: We are at the end of this series, and I trust that you're feeling more passionate about ministry, and I trust that you're feeling less apathetic about ministry. And in this final sermon, I want to provide you with a biblical answer to the question and to the common excuse, what will I get out of it? That's something we will ask ourselves often. The scripture this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of reading of God's word And we have this tradition, if you're new with us, we always read together in one voice. So the scripture's on the screen behind me, and we're going to read these verses together, just a few verses, but really powerful verses. And so 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11, let's read together. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning from 1 Peter chapter 4, and I pray that you would speak to our hearts, God, that we would hear exactly what you want to say to us. May we never be selfish, may we never be narcissistic or egotistic about having things and, and finding benefits for ourselves. May we be about the kingdom business today. May we be about the Father's house today. May we be about the mission of God in this world, O oh Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that today you would correct us, challenge us, teach us, and lead us, Lord, into the plan you have for us. God, I pray your blessing upon the word today. I need your help to preach it. Would you anoint me? May my lips be servant to your word, to your voice. And so, Jesus, we ask for your presence and your blessing in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. You may be seated. The question, what's in it for me, is one of the key questions that we will ask repeatedly through our lives. It's one of the key motivators of human behavior. And every decision, every act, every transaction, it passes through this selfish filter, Many people give of their time or their resources, but when they do so, they give with strings attached in order to receive an immediate return. Some people will give with this pay-it-forward mentality, this ideology would suggest that giving will result in a later return, that eventually, down the line, things will circle back and come back to us, and we'll be blessed for it. Certainly, the Bible advocates for the principle of sowing and reaping. Those are biblical words, those are agricultural words, but it is not a Christian bypass for us to have selfish gain in our lives. See, the reality is that our hearts are torn. Each of our hearts are torn in between two worlds. You and I, we live under the worldly principles of gaining and of maintaining. But you and I also believe in the biblical principles of the Word of God. And those biblical principles are of serving and giving. And so we live in this clash of worldviews on a regular basis. This what's in it for me attitude can lead us into a spiritual apathy, which makes us consumers instead of givers and servers. I want you to beware of this consumer mentality of people in the church. It's not of the Lord. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the most profound thing that you have ever received in your life was freely given to you. Do you know that? It was freely given to you. You and I didn't deserve it. You and I could never have earned it. You and I were served by Jesus Christ. And the gift of salvation comes from our generous God. you believe that today? That our God is a generous God. It's a gift that you can never repay, and nor should you ever try to repay. Otherwise, it would not be a gift at all. It's a gift to be received, to be enjoyed, to be appreciated. And the biblical motivation for every believer is that we give because we have already been given to. See, God has already initiated the giving process, and now out of having received that gift, we now become givers. Jesus' expectation is that each of us would follow his biblical advice. In Matthew 10, 8, it says, Freely you have received, freely give. Freely you've received, freely give. Christ has modeled what he expects from us And the question is whether we will be led by worldly principles or will we be led by biblical principles? Which one will outweigh the other? So this morning, I want to draw out three biblical motivations that will lead us to do three things, to bless people, lead us to use our gifts, and lead us to praise our God based on 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. First point I wanna share with you this morning is that people may be blessed. That people may be blessed. Verses seven to nine, we read, the end of all things is near. Uh-oh, Pretty, that's kind of scary news, isn't it? The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and be of sober mind so that you may do what? Pray. <laughs> Above all, love each other deeply, Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. There's the caveat, without grumbling. (laughs) See, the Apostle Peter, he gives three cautions about specific areas in our lives in which we tend to grow apathetic. He did not address one Christian. He addressed a group of believers. And so therefore, this text is not disciplinary, like, oh, you bad Christian, you shouldn't have done that. It's cautionary. It's telling us what we should be aware of, what we should be on guard against. And he calls for two-way giving, not just one-way giving, but two-way giving, reciprocating these actions towards each other and to one another. The first is prayer. We can grow apathetic in our prayer life. How many know that? How many have experienced that? Our prayer life can wane. We can struggle to connect with God and pray. To pray with the right heart requires alertness. It requires sober-mindedness. And what specifically does the Apostle Peter have in mind here? Well, first is this. First, we need to be aware that the end is near in order to pray rightly. When we have the end in mind, we can pray very specific, very strategic prayers because we know the end is near. Now, some people doubt that the end is near. Jesus' return is imminent, and the coming of his kingdom is near. I believe that with my whole heart. You're going to hear that preached from this pulpit every time I'm up here. I know Peter wrote those words almost 2,000 years ago, but we need to recapture the urgency of Scripture that transcends time and place. Jesus, my friends, is coming again soon. Do you believe that today? See, this time of waiting, you need to understand, is an exhibition of God's patience, of God's grace, that God desires that none should perish, all would have everlasting life. He's being patient, that's why the delay. But he's coming soon. And so with the end in mind, we're able to pray the right time. Prayers. We can see things in its proper view. Second, we need to be aware of our default disposition in order to pray rightly. We must recognize who we once were. We must continually go back to that story, that salvation story of our lives, and look back and remember who we once were apart from Christ, and then we can acknowledge who we are and who we can be in Christ. Without that alertness, Without that sober-mindedness, we will always choose selfishness over selflessness. God forbid, God forbid that our Christianity ever become inward-focused. Secondly is love. We can grow apathetic in our love life. Now, I don't mean our romantic life. I'm talking about our spiritual life, our spiritual loves. Have you heard of that word Philadelphia? Philadelphia. I'm not talking about Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I'm talking about Philadelphos or Philadelphia, which is brotherly love or sisterly love. And we love all people because God has created all people, and his image is pressed and stamped upon each person that he has designed and formed in their mother's womb. And this love, it takes the place of priority. Did you notice in the text? that it says above all above all the highest thing above all other things above all should be love at the end of his love discourse in first corinthians 13:13 13, 13, the apostle paul had said now these three remain faith hope and love but the greatest above all of these is love it is out of love that jesus died for us. It is out of love that we serve each other. Christians are called to a mutual love, a loving of one another. Furthermore, our love, it has a restorative feature to it. See, God is love, and God's love is now at work in us. God has chosen to express his love through us when we love one another. Apostle Peter even went so far to say that love covers a multitude of sins. Now, just think about that for a second. Love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus' love covers a multitude of sins, but the ability for you to love can also cover a multitude of sins. Christ's love delivered in and through us leads to forgiveness. It leads to healing. And that's God's work in and through us. Christians do not love in order to be loved. They love because they have already been loved. They have personally experienced the fullness of Christ's love in their life. The third thing is hospitality. We grow apathetic in our hospitality. Now, we've all endured this two-year COVID period. And we haven't been in each other's homes. And, you know, maybe before the pandemic, we did an okay job of this. But I think now post-pandemic, we really struggle with this. See, fellowship in the home over a meal was a key characteristic of the early church that is disappearing among the 21st century church. Are you with me today? See, hospitality is important because it spiritually forms the heart of the host By serving the guest, by serving the foreigner, by serving that outsider. It does something. It changes us. So most of us would like to be invited to someone's home. Wouldn't you like that? Somebody invites you to their home. You don't have to cook. You go to their home. They've already cooked for you. Now, that's really nice. But you might not be interested in inviting someone to your own home. That's a little different. That's my personal space. That's my living room, and it's a little cluttered right now. See, for some, accepting such an invitation might make you feel obligated to do the same, that there's this weight upon you. It's not actually fun and enjoyable. It's like a burden that's been placed upon you. And I think this is what the Apostle Peter meant when he added that very clause without grumbling. (laughs) That you're thinking, oh, man, now I have to do the same. They invited me to their house Now i got to invite them to our house. Man, this is, oh, what am I going to feed them? What am I going to do with them? See, for others, accepting such an invitation might make you feel actually competitive. To outdo the other person or people in the practice of hospitality, it becomes a question of who did it better. (laughs) I think many of us might excuse ourselves by saying that hospitality is not our spiritual gift. (laughs) oh yeah it's not my gift pastor it's not my gift don't ask me to do anything like that it's just not my thing and while there are some people who are specifically gifted by the Holy Spirit for the task they just excel at it naturally hospitality my friends hear this today from the word of God hospitality is a universal command not just for some believers it is for all believers all how do I know? As the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 13 instructed, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality, period. That's it. Practice hospitality. What does practice mean? Practice means do it over and over and over and over again so that you will improve the more you do it. You might not be a great host at at, at a default level. That's fine. But the more you host, the better host you become. Just like cooking, you might not be a good cook when you get married or, you know, when you're in college on your own or in university, but the more you cook, hopefully, the better we become. And so we pray. And so we love. And so we are hospitable because we have been blessed to be a blessing Because it is better to give than to receive. And because we have been given so much, we can give. Secondly, today, second point is gifts may be used. That our gifts would be used. Verses 10 to the beginning of verse 11. Scripture says each of you should use whatever gift, whatever that looks like, whatever gift you have received from God to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides. Talking about spiritual gifts here. Spiritual gifts are distributed by the Holy Spirit. In fact, you do not even get a choice as to what spiritual gift you receive. Isn't that fun? You, you want this, you desire these things, but the Holy Spirit determines what's best for you to have. And they're not given for your personal benefit, for your personal edification. They are given for the edification of other people. These gifts do not belong to you. They have been entrusted to you, meaning you don't own it. it comes from the Lord. Another word for spiritual gifts is charismata, from which we get the word charismatic. And it draws from the Greek word charis, which means grace. It's a grace. These these gifts are graces. And charisma, that word charisma actually means gift. So these are gifts of grace. And so there is no point in being gifted something if you never share your gift. If you do not use your gift, no one will benefit from your gift. All God is asking you to do today is to be faithful by being a good steward of the spiritual gifts the Holy Spirit has given you. That's it. Now, there are two categories of spiritual gifts, according to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. It's a great place to start when you're studying the spiritual gifts. And the first category, you'll notice, are speaking gifts. And the second category is serving gifts. See, all spiritual gifts that we find in the Bible will all find their origin in one of these two categories. They'll either be speaking gifts or they'll be serving gifts. So when God moves you to speak, you must do so as those who speak the very words of God. What a weightiness to that. What a responsibility we have that when we speak in the power of the Lord, that we're speaking the very words of God. Not my words, not your words, God's words. Now, Of course, God is going to engage your mind and your mouth in the process. We're not just robots whom God downloads something into and then we just play back the message. It does not mean that we speak as if we are God and we say, thus says the Lord, You have to add the uh at the end to add some weight to it. We're we're to speak with humility. We're we're to speak with reverence because we know it's the Lord's word. And the issue with speaking gifts is this, is that in our humanity, we might be tempted to say something that we think God wants to say, but which God has not said. That's when we get into trouble. We must ensure that it is God's message and that we are only the messenger. We are only the herald. We are only the one giving voice to it. We must allow the message then to be tested by others to ensure its authenticity, that it lines up with God's word, that it's actually encouraging to the people. So when God mobilizes you to serve, this is, speaking, and now they're serving. When God mobilizes you to serve, you must do so not in your own strength. You don't serve in your own strength. You serve with the strength that God provides for you. Now, of course, God is going to now engage your hands and your feet. We are not robots who receive a command and then complete the task and function. We are not to serve out of our natural strengths, but instead in the supernatural strength that God provides. And that's what makes the difference, the supernatural strength. The issues with serving gifts is that we might have life experience. We might have natural competencies that enable us to do the task or function without the help of God. But I want you to hear this today. I've been trying to echo it throughout the last sermons in this series. God is less interested in what you can do. God is less interested in what you can do. He is more interested in what he can do through you. you got to get that in your heart today. If you don't get anything from this series, you got to get this in your heart. He can do a lot through you. You can do so much on your own. The sky is the limit with God. Actually, the sky isn't the limit with God. God can do greater than that, as the saying goes. After speaking and after serving, what do you get out of it? Let's ask ourselves that main question. What do you get out of it? Here's the reality. For the most part, nothing. Nothing. If anything, you get the satisfaction of being obedient to the Holy Spirit and the promptings of the Spirit, and you get the satisfaction of of knowing that you were faithful with God's message and His mobilization through you. You can just know that you did what He told you to do, and that is enough. Why? Because spiritual gifts were never about you, they were always about other people. We do not use our spiritual gifts to showcase some kind of superior spirituality. This so often happens in the life of the church. People are like, I have a direct line to the Holy Spirit. Jesus and I were really tight. Like you you see me pray, did you hear my prayer? It was so eloquent. It was so wonderful. Verbose. Just like, wow. Where did you learn that? Who taught you that? I've been working on it. It's been a couple of years. And that's what happens. We 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 come to this place of thinking that we're superior than others, a superior spirituality but we are to use our spiritual gifts because God simply wants to do this. He just wants to edify and build up and encourage people. Our God is an encouraging God. And the only way you can receive a benefit is if someone else is obedient, if somebody else is faithful, to use their spiritual gifts to edify you. That's how it works. I gotta use my gifts, you have to use your gifts, and the result will be all of us are edified. All of us are encouraged. So use your gifts. Use your gifts. Thirdly, today, the final point, God may be praised. That God may be praised. The second half of verse 11, the scripture says, so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him, here's the doxology, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever And the church said, Amen. So if you do not get anything out of it, who will get something out of it? You serve to give praise. You serve to ascribe glory. You serve to ascribe power to God. That is why we serve. It is not selective as in some things. It is in totality as in all things. Notice that the Apostle Peter is very careful about the directionality of this praise. The only way that we can truly and rightly praise God if we praise God through Jesus Christ. So trinitarian, we see the Father, we see the Son, we even see the Holy Spirit with those gifts involved here. We need to remind ourselves that we do not serve God for appreciation so that he can pat us on our back and say, wow. Or we don't do it for recognition to hear somebody say, wow, you're just so amazing, such good serving, well done. As nice as that might be to hear from someone. Let me tell you, as a pastor, I always have to remind myself each week when I stand before you that I'm not preaching for your accolades. Can I speak the truth here? I'm not preaching for your accolades. Of course, your words of encouragement are nice. They're appreciated. And it gives me joy when I hear that you're blessed through something that is preached or taught. But preaching is not about me. Preaching is not about what kind of preacher I am. I have to be whole enough to know that preaching is about God. My sincere desire is that you leave every service at WPA doing one thing, You ready for it? Boasting in the Lord. Boasting in Christ Jesus. Telling people about how awesome he is and testifying of what amazing things he's done. That's what we should leave with here today. My sincere prayer is that you would leave with this magnified view of God, that God is great, that God is awesome, that God is mighty, that God is powerful, that God is able, that God can do anything. And if you can get that in your hearts and your minds by the end of a service, mission accomplished. Amen. (laughs) Oh, that we'd boast in the Lord and not in ourselves. That we'd have a magnified view of God. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 29, verses 1 to 2. It says, ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. This is happening in heaven. It's beautiful. But the psalmist says something similar then in Psalm 96, verse 7, verse 9. Verses 7 to 9, he says, ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Multi-ethnic church, are you hearing me today? Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts as we have today. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. See, you might understand praise, you might understand worship, but maybe we're not so sure if we understand a scribe. See, to ascribe is to verbally attribute or attribute a trait or a quality to a person. We're saying that this trait is true of this person. It is consistent in that person's character. God's glory, God's power are not traits that come and go. They're not here today and gone tomorrow. These are traits that are true of him forever and ever. Amen. This is our God. So what is the Apostle Peter teaching us in this portion of Scripture? It is that we get no glory. Zero. Nada. None. Zilch. No glory We get no glory. God gets all the glory. God gets 100% of the glory. We should never rob God of his glory. I love the way the English Standard Version of the Bible renders uh, Proverbs 25, verse 27. Listen to this. It is not good to eat much honey. Well, the modern version of this would be sugar, right? Or something like that. It is not good to eat too much sugar or honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory? You and I have done nothing to deserve glory. Jesus has done everything to deserve glory. In fact, even if he didn't do anything, he would still be worthy of glory. He alone deserves all the blessing and all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. He alone has all the power, all the strength, all the wisdom. He has it all. And that's why we go to him because he actually has it all. So can I encourage you today to praise the Lord, to give him glory. May God be praised through your life. It's not about us, it's about him. As I conclude this morning, the worship team returns in the era of the narcissist. Dr. Aaron Kiriati points out the self-absorption of our era. And this is what he says. Of all the amazing features of the medieval cathedrals, one feature stands out as very strange to the modern mind. We have no idea who designed and who built them. The architects and the builders did not bother to sign their names on the cornerstones. People today might ask, why build the Cathedral of Notre Dame if you can't take credit for it? No lasting fame, no immortalized human glory. We're perplexed by the humility of these forgotten artists who have labored in obscurity. They do, and then they disappear. But this is not how we roll in North America in the 21st century. See, all this humility and anonymity began to change during the Enlightenment era. For example, when Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote his book, Confessions, in 1789, he dedicated it, listen to these words, and I quote, to me with the admiration I owe myself. The book opens with these lines, I have entered upon a performance which is without example, whose accomplishment will have no imitator. I mean to present my fellow mortals with a man in all the integrity of nature, and this man shall be myself. Somebody is high on himself. In contrast, think about the 4th century Christian thinker named Augustine. Augustine's confessions... He wrote this book, and Rousseau actually ripped off Augustine's title in his book. And Augustine does this. He does something so different. He gives all glory to God, as in his opening lines from the book of Psalms, he says, Great thou art, and greatly to be praised. And as much as we might admire Augustine's humility, here's the thing. Rousseau's language sounds so much more familiar. To me, with the admiration I owe myself, a lot of eyes and me's and my's. It's a dedication that would look really at home today on social media and in our world, in this cultural moment that we're living in. How do we put an end to the narcissism? narcissism? How do we put an end to the egotism that prevails in our culture today. Use three filters. You can do it today. Take it from this sermon. Are people being blessed by what you do? Seriously, are people really being blessed by what you're doing? Secondly, are you exercising your spiritual gifts to edify people in whatever you do? Are you using those gifts that God has given you to the glory of God to help people? And thirdly, is God being exclusively praised through all that you do? Is God the one receiving the credit? Is God being